Guys, we are going to get right into the word. That's why we're here. Um, we're here to spend about 20 minutes reading the scripture, and then we're going to spend another um, we'll spend another uh, half hour reflecting on the scripture. So I want to get right to it, if that's all right with you guys. We are reading through the book of Judges. We've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and now we are reading Judges. Okay, we're reading through the book of Judges, and we started yesterday on it, and we're going to continue to journey and press into that. Um, we're going to ask three questions. Okay, the three questions that we're going to ask is, what is the Lord revealing concerning himself? What is the Lord revealing concerning people? And what is the Lord revealing concerning me? What is the Lord revealing concerning uh, me? Is our reading ran, and we'll spend some time just reflecting on that. But I want you to be prayerfully considering that as we read through the scriptures. Uh, for those of you who have been journeying with us, um, you, some of you have been here from the beginning. We've read through the entire New Testament, and now we're reading through the entire Old Testament. If you're looking to catch up, we have the Read and Rant podcast, which is now creeping towards 5,000. Guys, it's it's like it's blowing up. I, I would have never expected that, but here we are. Uh, but it's creeping towards 5,000 um, downloads. So check it out. It's on Spotify, and it's on Apple Podcasts. Um, it is called the Read and Rant podcast. So if you put Read and Rant you will find it there, uh, the Read and Rant podcast. And also, they're available immediately after this in our Facebook group. So you can go and follow and um, uh, send a request to our um, Facebook group, and you know, you'll be able to, to catch up with that. But, uh, but yes, yeah, with that being said, I want to get right into it, and I want to pray, and then we're going to get started. And then we're going to spend some time in reflection. If there's anything I want you to be thinking about as we read this, because we talked about how yesterday, how what Judges does, and it's one of the contributions that I believe Judges has in the grand narrative of humanity, is that Judges reveals the condition of man. Do you hear that? Judges reveals the condition of man. And what you're going to be reading is how it gets worse. <laughs> it just gets worse. Um, but let's go ahead and let's read and we'll get right to it. Father, we ask that you would uh, be with us today. But as we read your word, I pray that we would receive the truth of your word, the truth of your gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, give insight, give light to what it is, Lord, that you are revealing to us today. We pray, Lord, for spiritual discernment. Allow us, Lord, to be uh, Lord, mindful of your presence and all that we do today. And we say that in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Let's go ahead. Let's do it. Judges 4. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord saw, sold them sorry, into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army in Sisera, who dwelt in Harosheth Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time, and she would sit under a palm tree 
under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel, in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment, and she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, and Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulon. And against you I deploy, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon. And I will deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree and Zanaim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported in Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth, Hagoim, to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera aligned from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the Tenajio, <clears throat> the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jah went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And she said to her, and he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took the tent peg and took a hammer in her head and went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple and went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, for he died. Sorry, so he died. And then Barak pursued Sisera. Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. When he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with a peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel, and the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of 
Canaan. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, When the leaders led in Israel, when the people willingly offered themselves, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. Lord, you went out from Seir. When you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. The mountains gushed before the Lord, this Sinai, before the Lord God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. And the travelers walked along the byways. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel. Until I, Deborah, arose. Arose a mother in Israel. They chose new gods. Then there was war in the gates. Not a spear, not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people. Bless the Lord. Speak, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire, and who walk along the road, far from the noise of the archers, among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go out before the, sorry, go down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak. And lead your captives away, O son of Abinoam. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. And Ephraim were those whose roots were Amalek. After you, Benjamin, with your people, from Machir rulers come down, and from Zebulon, who bear the who bear the recruiter staff, and the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searching, searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued on the she seashore and stayed by his inlets. Zebulon is a people who jeopardized their life to the point of death, Naphtali, also on the heights of the battlefield. Goodness gracious. The kings came and fought, then the kings of Canaan fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens. The stars from their corners fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept away the ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. O oh, my soul, march on in strength, and the horse's hooves pounded, the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse, Morose, said the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants bitterly, because they did not come to help, to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed among women is Jael the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked, her for, he asked for water. She gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched out her hand to the, tech, to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer. She pounded Sisera. She pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell. 
he lay still. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. The mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice, Why is this chariot so long? Sorry. Let me get a... Lost my IG, peoples. <clears throat> Verse 30. Are they not finding and dividing the spoil? Is every man a girl or two? For Sisera plundered of dye garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord. But let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength. So the land had rest for 40 years. Good morning, Ellison. We're going to be on in Judges 6 now. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel because of the Midianites. The children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also, Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor donkey, for they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites and whose land you dwell, but you have obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth tree, which was Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Ebezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Hmm. Has anybody ever had that question? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. And you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? <laughs> so he said to him, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you. 
and bring out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put in the broth in a pot and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put the end of the staff. Oh, sorry. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and a fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and fire. uh, Sorry. And the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abezrites. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image was beside that was beside it was cut down. The second bull was being offered on the altar, which, which had been built. So they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired, they asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die because he has torn down the altar of Baal and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. So Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him plead for himself because his altar had been torn down. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together and they crossed over and encamped the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abizrites <clears throat> gathered behind him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who had gathered together beside him. He also sent messengers of Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali. And they came up to meet him. Ah. We're in Judges 6, verse 36 now. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so 
When he rose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece together and he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it only be dry now on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. Last chapter. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped outside of the well of Harad. So that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me. Give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel came claim glory for itself against me. My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. 22,000 men returned and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go with you. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall eat and set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, by 300 men who have lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his own place. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hand, and he sent them all away, the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and remained and, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall say what, what they say, and sorry, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And he went with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites were people. Sorry, I lost some connection here. Let me make sure we're back. Good. Uh, now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, there is nothing else but the sword of Gideon. This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian in the whole camp. And so it was when Midian heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, 
for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Then he divided 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise, watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers that were in their hands, and <clears throat> then all the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. When the 300 men blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Meloah, by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites, seize from them from watering places as far as Bethbarah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together, seizing the water place, watering places as far as Bethbarah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes from the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. And we're going to stop right here. Hmm. There's a lot to unpack here. Um. As I was reading this, I'm being consumed by a thought and I pray that you would be slightly patient as I build up to this thought. Um, what we see here today is the story of two judges. And remember what Judges chapter 2 had warned us about. Judges 2, uh, let me preface by saying this before I even begin this. There are those of you who are here for the first time and you've eavesdropped in and you're wondering, okay, what are we actually doing here? Every morning we just read through the entire Bible, okay? We read through the entire Bible. So we, we're reading through the entire Old Testament right now. We've already read through the New Testament and now we're reading through the Old Testament. We spend about 20, 30 minutes reading and then I spend another 20, 30 minutes reflecting. Oh, how, whatever time I'm afforded to spend time in reflection. I don't really have anything planned. This is why I call it the read and rant because this is in a lot of ways a rant. It's just me just sharing whatever thoughts I'm afforded in that particular moment, in that particular time. Um, we have been journeying now through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And I hope now you're beginning to see that rather than codifying and breaking the scripture down, 
what we're seeing is we're seeing a story of the children of God, the children of Israel. And we've seen the story all the way to the children of Israel leaving the wilderness now to um, entering, sorry, leaving uh, Egypt, going to the wilderness and now entering, they have entered into the promised land in Joshua. And as I had spoke about yesterday, now they're in the promised land. But the, the, the issue now with the children of Israel, and that's what Judges chapter two does is Judges chapter two tells us that while they're in the land that's promised to them, they had to eradicate the remnant of the Canaanites in the promised land. Yes, they won, but they left remnants of the Canaanites. And, and what I spoke to you guys yesterday is the incredible influence that even the minority of the Canaanites had on the majority of the children of Israel. They were just a little bit of leaven, and that little bit of leaven leavened the whole lump, meaning just a little bit, just a few of them caused now the children of Israel, instead of influencing the Canaanites, the Canaanites now influence the children of Israel to live as they live. Are you with me here? Um, and so, I, I, and again, you can go back and you can, because I don't want to belabor that, because that's something I want to work through today. Because now we see the consequence of it. Because what God was doing is God was looking to heal the land. God was looking to establish a government. Remember, the law and all this was not for heaven or hell. This was about God's government and God's rule on earth. The laws and the statutes weren't about eternal salvation, as people would like to um, um, apply, imply. But it was more about what? The law that was given to the children of Israel. The law wasn't even given to Christians, but to the children of Israel to show the world what the kingdom of God would look like. It was meant to shape them into becoming the people, the, the, the nation of priests. God set this land aside for them from the beginning with this promise that he made to Abraham. And we've read all the way up to this. So you guys have been with me, you know this. But he, 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 he makes this covenant with Abraham. He reinstitutes the covenant at Mount Sinai. And then he reinstitutes the covenant again Right at the end of the book of um, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, and then he reinstitutes the cover uh, the, the the covenant again at the end of the book of Joshua to remind them that they were called to be a nation of priests who rule in a different way. The way that they ruled was they ruled under the authority of God rather than the authority of self. Do you hear me? They ruled under the authority of God rather than the authority of self. If there's anything that you got from what we spoke about yesterday is that all evil in the world comes out of the authority of the ego. Everything that is evil in the world comes out of me, myself, and I. The Canaanites were governed by person, by ego. And because they were governed by ego, they were able to, to prostrate power, influence on other people. So now the law was not love. The law was not the character in the heart of God, but the law rather was what pleased me and what I could exude or to uh, prostrate my power over. So everything that is wrong with the world is actually rooted in the ego. And that's what Judges exposes. Judges exposes how... Um, profoundly, not just toxic, but destructive, the ego is. Man does what is right in his own eyes, and in the end, it leads to destruction. And that's what we're going to read throughout the book of Judges, is it's the ego that kills. 
it's the ego that destroys. It's actually my desire, what I want, how I want it, me, myself, and I. This is what causes all the evil, all the suffering in the world from war, from all the isms, okay? Sexism, ageism, um, from, from, from all the isms in the world, they come from the ego. Okay, even capitalism and socialism all come from the ego. And because it comes from the ego, in the end, what happens is, is it leads to pride. It leads to envy. It leads to hate. It is destructive. And it is, it is the means by which the Canaanites lived. Please do not forget this. The Canaanites were a... Um, we, when the scripture says that they were an evil people, sometimes people think that evil simply means bad things no evil is anything other than the righteousness of god and when we talk about the righteousness of god often we think of the righteousness of god as being good enough to go to heaven and hell that is not actually how they understood the righteousness of god in the old testament the righteousness of god was not about heaven and hell understand this the righteousness of god was understood as the authority and the rule of god the righteousness of God, the word righteousness in the scripture is the word sikeno. Okay? You can write that down. It's the word sikeno. The word righteousness is the word sikeno. And that word quite literally means justice. It is the justice of God. You know, I've seen, um, again, these are egocentric churches who will preach to you and tell you that, um, that social justice is not the gospel. Or they'll tell you that um, God wasn't about justice on earth. That is a lie from the pit of hell. God was always about the justice on earth. He was always about restoring the earth. As a matter of fact, he's not calling us out of the earth. He's calling us to bring restoration to the earth. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is actually earth centric he's not sometimes we think about just going to heaven but not realizing that god is god's mission is to bring heaven to earth it started with heaven on earth that was eden it's going to end with heaven on earth okay that's the intention of god that was the intentionality of god that is the justice of god that is the righteousness of god that is the government of god okay this is what we're reading. That's why when you read the scriptures from the beginning all the way through, now you begin to see the biblical thread of, of, um, of the story of God. And now the children of Israel were called to be those people who would show and bring that remnant back to earth. Israel, or the, the promised land, was really about a foreshadow of Eden it was, we're going to rule not as the rest of the world rules, because when the rest of the world rules, it's sexual immorality. When the rest of the world rules, it's sexual abuse. When the rest of the world rules, it's violence, it's bloodbath, it's, um, it, it's Game of Thrones, right? That's what happens when the world rules. Ah, but when God rules, it's different. It's love. It's sacrifice. It's not one, it's not power over, it's power with, it's power together. It's a whole different government. It's a whole different way of ruling. You have to understand how cutting edge the way the children of Israel, the way they ruled was in comparison to the rest of the world. 
Okay. There was no welfare system until God instituted it. <laughs> okay. The tithes that we see about and the offerings that were made were to help the poor and the needy and to provide public services and public goods. And those who would serve those public services and public goods, those were the Levites. They were agents. They were ministers of God to administrate the righteousness and the justice of God to the rest of the children of Israel. This is not something that existed anywhere else in the world. If you were sick and in need, you were dead and gone. And yet here we begin to see um, how cutting edge it is. We see women's rights. We see the rights of those who are in need the rights of those who are um, hurt, the rights of these things did not exist. As a matter of fact, in those cultures, children didn't even have rights. They would actually sacrifice children. Let me back that up for a second. The way they actually worshipped was through child sacrifice. This is how they lived. People weren't seen. The, the dignity of humanity did not exist. Okay, The dignity of being human was not a part or was not an identification of the culture of the Canaanites. Anybody could die, okay? Anybody could be killed. It was nothing for them to die. Children, women, it didn't matter who they were. That's why I think you would go, man, it's so violent. How could God just let these people be wiped out? These people were governed by a different law. It was the law of ego, the law of self, which led to everything that was evil and destructive in the world. This is Canaan. And remember what I challenged you with yesterday. I challenged you with, have we allowed Canaan to creep into our hearts? Because what we, re, what, what we saw at the beginning of Judges was how Canaan creeped into Israel. Now, Israel, which was meant to govern in a way that was fundamentally different than the rest of the world, now Canaan seems to now rule over them. They became a Canaanite nation when they were meant to be a holy nation. Remember, the word holy doesn't mean perfect. The word holy literally means to be other than and to be separate. When the Lord says, be holy for I'm holy, he's saying you're going to live in a way that looks fundamentally different than the rest of culture than the rest of society. Be holy for I am holy. Do you hear that? So Canaan is fundamentally different than the rest of the world. Sorry, um, Israel was meant to be different than the rest of the world. And yet now, Israel goes into Canaan and the remnant of the Canaanites that they were supposed to destroy now have consumed them. And now they're living like them. And now they look like them. Again, it speaks to us. Do we allow Canaan to govern our lives? Have we let even the little remnant of Canaan govern us? Are you hearing me? Have we let the, the little remnant of, of, of Canaanite thinking, Canaanite philosophy, Canaanite ideology, have we, have we allowed it to influence us? Because that's what happens here. And that brings me now to judges, because now what we see is, is that God is doing a work through these people, but every time they disobeyed God, every time they began to fall into Canaanite thinking, they fell into captivity. And when they fell into captivity, let me let me just put a little side note on this. And I was speaking to uh, a, a a fellow uh, 
family member in the faith. And I told him, there are things that God lets some people get away with that God won't let you get away with. And it's not God punishing you. It's actually God loving you. There are things that you see the rest of the world get away with that somehow you do the, you would do the same exact thing and yet you fall into profound consequences for those things. And there are some people that are going, man, why is God punishing me over everyone else? But what if you thought about it this way? Maybe it's because you're set apart that God, placing you at a higher standard, sees you more highly in the calling on your life and so does not allow you to live as the world lives and to not suffer the consequences. Matter of fact, the same way that a father will discipline his son and his daughter because he loves him and he loves her, right? I, you know, it's like going to, it's like going to the mall, right? You can go to the mall and you see that one kid that's acting rude. You don't go up to that kid and start correcting them. They're not yours. But when it's your child who's acting a certain way, what do you do? You correct them. Why? Because you love them. God's got a mission and a plan through these people. God's not going to allow these people to fall into Canaanite thinking and not suffer the consequences because God is reorient them, reorienting them to his calling. You've noticed, and this is just a side note real quick, that there are, there are Christians in here who they'll say, man, you know, every time I fall off, it's like I just, I, I hurt more. It's like anytime I disobey God, somehow I suffer more for it. And, and, if that's you, be thankful for that. Be thankful for the times where you don't get away with it. <laughs> be thankful for that time when you were living a life that you shouldn't have lived and got pregnant before your time. Be thankful for that because it's those very things in your life that allow you to be reoriented back into the presence of God. Oh, God, you will suffer the consequences, not because of God's hate, but because of God's love. Grace and love can hurt sometimes. That was just a side note. And so we see the children of Israel, every time they fell into the Canaanite thinking, they suffered, they suffered bondage. They suffered oppression because God loves them. Did you hear that? Um, if you live like Canaan, expect to suffer the consequence. And if you live like Canaan, Canaan may not suffer the consequences that you suffer in this time because God will punish you for the now to protect you for eternity. You will, you will, you will suffer now for eternity and it's all God's love. He just loves you that much. <laughs> I hope y'all getting what I'm saying here. And yet every time they fell into captivity, God brought a judge. This is what the book of Judges is about. He brought a judge who would come in and release them from captivity. Now, the judges were military leaders. The judges were, um, you could say, spiritual, military, um, political leaders. They were both spiritual. They were militaristic and they were political. And, and the reason why they were militaristic, because 
generally when a judge was selected and chosen it was to get the people out of bondage again because they were under bondage because of going back to Canaanite living and Canaanite thinking they began to worship like the Canaanites live like the Canaanites talk like the Canaanites act like the Canaanites and then they would fall into bondage and then God would call among them a judge and so we saw that we saw the three judges yesterday and now we get to these two judges. I'm sorry if it took me time to get here. But we get to these two judges. Deborah and Gideon. Gideon, we, we, we see because we, we just read in, in, in chapter 7 how they were delivered. They didn't even fight. They literally circled the camp, had trumpets and torches. And by simply lifting up torches and blowing trumpets, the Gideonites got thrown off and in their confusion, killed each other. So the Gideonites didn't even, um, Gideon's, uh, sorry, uh, the Gideonites, the Midianites, destroyed each other the lord gave them victory not through weapons the lord gave them victory through simply faith belief submission and glory again showing how the lord fights but what's interesting is is that throughout all of that god calling gideon to be the judge to deliver the children from the from the oppression of the Midianites, watch this now. Gideon profoundly felt incapable. He felt profoundly incapable of fulfilling the call. God calls him and he says, we saw it, he says that he was the the least among the least. He's like you're calling me? I can't do this. And then God sends four, four miraculous um, uh, responses to Gideon to assure Gideon that I'm with you. And every step of the way, it's like Gideon's like, I need one more. Give me one more remnant, one more miracle, one more thing. Uh, okay, take the cloth. The cloth, I'm going to put the cloth out if the, the ground is dry, but all the dew is on the, the cloth, then um, then I'll believe it's you, Lord. And then he sees it and he goes, no, no, no wait, hold on, Lord. Um, okay, I, I think I believe you. So let me now, I'll leave the cloth out. And if the cloth is dry and the ground is wet, then I'll believe it's you. And then afterwards, he keeps asking for signs and signs and signs. Gideon is a guy who feels profoundly incapable. He, he, he doesn't see himself as one who can, and he has incredible fear. And God, by his grace, continues to give him remnants to allow him to step up and to lead. This is a man who, while he feels weak and incapable, simply submitted to the call. And God just continued to give him remnants. But Gideon had to step up and to do it. 
Gideon takes the 22,000 soldiers that we saw at the beginning of, of chapter six and it shrinks them down to 300. He's trusting the Lord, but he is terrified. And he, can, and he asks for one more, give me one more glimpse. And he goes down into the camp and he hears what they say, that they're afraid of him. They're, they're more afraid of him. And they believe in Gideon more than he believes in himself. It's for every man and woman here. That the enemy believes in you often, more often than you believe in yourself. The enemy actually believes in the authority and the power that you have more than you believe in yourself. This goes for somebody right now who's under spiritual oppression in their home, who goes home afraid because they're worried about whatever spiritual presence is in their house. There's, this goes to someone right now who's, who's, who's profoundly afraid of confronting the devil and confronting Satan and confronting his demons. There, there, there's some people right now who they see the enemy and, and they see the enemy and they're, they're, they're absolutely afraid. They don't know how they're going to overcome. I, I came to declare to you today that the enemy is more afraid of you than you are of him. As a matter of fact, what the devil does is the devil tries to instill fear in you because at the end of the day, the enemy can do nothing, nothing to you. What he wants to make you think, family, is he wants to make you think that you are powerless because if he makes you think that you're powerless and that you don't have authority, remember, it's not the authority you have, it's the authority you come with. If you come with the authority of Christ, you have nothing to be worried about. The victory is already yours. But if he can make you think that you do not have authority, and if he can make you think that you do not have power, he will keep you in a place where you will not step up and step in faith and fight back. And if he keeps you thinking that you're powerless and he makes you think that he has power, and if he can instill fear in you, you know what he'll do? He'll make you think you need to go to sage. He'll make you think you need to go to other things. He'll make you think that you, you're missing something. He'll make you think you need to go to the stars. And he'll make you think that you need to study astrology. He'll make you think that you need to go to a seance. He'll make you think that you need to go to a psychic. He'll make you think that you don't have the power and that you need to go to somebody else who does. And yet you have all the power. That's how he gets you. He gets you by making you think that you don't have it in you. This whole time in this text, Gideon does not think he has it. And finally, God sends Gideon down to the enemy's camp. And he sends him down to the enemy's camp. And when he listens in the camp, he realizes the enemy that he's afraid of is afraid of him. And the enemy that he's afraid of has already declared that he's won. The enemy knows he's won the battle. The last person to know in this text is Gideon. Gideon is the last person to know that he's already won. Even the enemy knew that. And there's some people who need to hear this today. That the enemy wants to keep you ignorant. Notice, there's nothing you need to do. You've already won. You've already overcome in Christ. 
but he wants you to think that you haven't won. He wants you to think that you do not have. He wants you to think that you cannot do. He wants you to remain ignorant. The enemy wins in our ignorance, not in our lack of power. We're like giants who don't use our strength. The enemy is profoundly afraid of us, and what the enemy is hoping is that we don't see in us what the enemy sees in us. That's just a side note. That wasn't my main point. It took me a while to get here. Give me a few more minutes. I know it's almost nine. Give me a few more minutes, and I hope this is helping you. Because now this takes me to another part of this text, which is convicting me as I've been praying through my reading today. Gideon is a man who feels profoundly incapable. And yet God continues to give him little remnants, little remnants, little remnants to reveal to him and to tell him and to remind him that he can, that he's already won for him. Gideon's victory was not in how big his sword was. Gideon's victory was in how great his obedience was. Gideon's victory was not through slashing and fighting. And Gideon's victory was literally in the blowing of trumpets and in the raising of torches. Gideon did nothing but watch the enemy destroy himself because God had already given Gideon the victory. Ah, but this is in contrast now to a valiant woman named Deborah. Stay with me now. And this is my word of conviction today as I'm meditating on this text. Gideon is a man who feels incapable, but a man who has the call of God on his life. And that's in contrast to a woman who is a woman of valor. Deborah, who the scriptures tell us was a prophetess. <laughs> she was a prophetess. Deborah is a woman who serves as a judge to help deliver the people out of bondage after Ehud has died. And not just after Ehud has died, but what's his name was a judge? Shamgar. Shamgar was a judge after Ehud. So you had Othniel, then you had Ehud, then you had Shamgar. And now you've got Deborah. Remember, they're in and out. They keep sinning. They fall in. God calls a judge. They get out. They sin. They fall in bondage. God calls a judge. Gets them out. They sin again. They fall into bondage. God calls Deborah. But the condition by which Deborah has been chosen, you know, what I want to point out in this text today is I want to point out the contrast. We see a man who feels profoundly incapable. But in Judges 4 and 5 that we read, particularly in 4, because 5 is just recapping 4. Judges 5 is just the song recapping what happened in Judges 4. In Judges 4, 
this powerful woman of God steps up and drives Sisera, who now has the children under bondage, the children of Israel under bondage, and Jabin, I'm sorry, Sisera, who, who, who has the children in bondage. Now, watch this now, watch this. Deborah arises, and Sisera flees. Deborah leads, along with Barak, into battle, Sisera flees, loses the battle. So now she fights different. <laughs> Gideon fought with praise. Deborah fought with swords. And Deborah, with Barak leading the way as the general, Deborah being the judge, Barak being the general, watch this now, Sisera flees. And after Sisera flees, who destroys Sisera? Jael, another woman. I find that interesting because we see a, a complete contrast in these two stories. We see a man who feels profoundly incapable, but leads the children of Israel into victory simply through his obedience and submission to God. But this is in contrast to women now who have also been part of the story of delivering the children of Israel except they did it with a sword. Deborah, with Barak as a general, led by the sword and drew, drew, drove Sisera out. Jael takes Sisera into her tent and literally hammers a peg. A peg was like one of those like huge nails that you nail down to a tent. Nailed a peg through his temple, killing him. We see a highlight here. We see women who have led in the deliverance of the children of Israel. And we see a man who is, by all measures, weak. By all measures, not one anyone was impressed with. And I celebrate the women in, in the scriptures and the power that they have. But there was one thing in the scripture that really hit me. And I think it's really in light of what I've been reflecting on in the last, uh, for the last few days. And if you could stay with me, give me a few more minutes, guys. I know I'm a little bit over. Give me a few more minutes. But something that I've been reflecting on in the past few days, um, particularly even in the message that I had to preach on Sunday, a conviction that I have. I see these women stepping up and leading. But Deborah says something that should pierce the, how, the heart of any man who's here. Deborah sees the bondage and says, it's time. We can't we can't continue to submit under the bondage of these people. We need to step up. We need to correct. We need to go back to the law that was given to us and serve our God. Notice she's saying serve our God, serve his law, follow him. And she talks to Barak. And this is Barak's response to her. Barak says to her in verse 8, if you will go with me, then I will go. 
And if you will not go with me, I will not go. Something beautiful about that, that he's, in, he's including Deborah into the story. But Deborah says something that should pierce the heart of every man who's watching this right now. It should pierce every man's heart. Deborah says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Um, every husband here, if you're married, um, there's some there's a there's a special gift that your wife has, and if you're not married, maybe you're engaged, or maybe you have a girlfriend, and and uh, and you know, maybe you're getting close to taking the next step. But that one woman in your life who you love very much, they have a special gift. They have a way to touch you <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> like they know your buttons. They can push your buttons. They know exactly where you hurt. <laughs> they know where they can get. If they want to, they can boom. <clears throat> they can hit you right there. Deborah, for anyone who's reading this, can hear what Deborah's saying if you really pay attention here. Deborah. Touching this man. Deborah says to her, I will surely go with you. She didn't say it in an encouraging way. She said it to him in a condescending way. Surely I will go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. Yeah, I'll go with you. But if you let me go with you, you ain't getting nothing out of this. But isn't Barack fighting? Yeah. Barack is fighting. But Barack isn't leading. Deborah asked for Barack to step up. And Barack's response was, and I ain't going to go unless you go with me. Up to this point, it was the men that led. Up to this point, it was the men that would see the injustice. It was the men that would step up. And yet it took a woman to say, Hold up, 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 hold up. Are y'all just going to sit here and let Sisera oppress you like this? And for men to finally say, you know what, Deborah, you're right. You're right, Deborah. Uh, but you, you're going to have to go with me. Imagine Deborah's response. Deborah's probably like, are you serious? Like, if we were to put it in our own language, Deborah literally said, Seriously? I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in this journey. 
for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. This was not said in a celebratory tone. She says this to him in a condescending tone. This should touch every man. This should pierce every man who's reading this. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Deborah did not want to go and fight. Deborah wanted Barak to step up. I've heard this said in different ways. You know, it's great that Barak included Deborah in this. And and listen, here's the thing that you that I hope you're beginning to realize: God will use anyone for His glory. God will use anyone for his glory. It doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what society says. That's why there are women who are moving in the power of God today. There are women who are ministering, women who are leading. God will use anyone. But let's acknowledge here, though, <laughs> that Deborah didn't want to go. This wasn't Deborah's desire. Deborah didn't want to go and fight. Deborah wanted them to go and fight. Deborah knew they already had the victory. And she's looking at the guy like, are you serious right now? Fine. I'll go with you. Deborah stepped up because Barack wouldn't. Deborah stepped up because the men wouldn't. Deborah stepped up because she saw the passivity of the men in her nation. How do I know that? Because if you look at Judges chapter 5, she points to the heart now behind it. She's, she, 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 she's singing this song, the song of victory, and she's reading the story, and she's saying, then the survivors came down in 5 verse 13, the people against the nobles, and the Lord came down for me against the mighty, hearing from God. Then he, she says, from Ephraim were, the, were, were those whose roots were in Amalek, after you, Benjamin, with all your people. And then notice what she begins to say as you move further down. She says, why did you sit? Verse 16, watch this now. Deborah is asking a question here. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? Why are you sitting, Reuben? Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. Why did Dan remain in ships? Do you hear what Deborah's saying? Maybe you guys are missing this. Hopefully you guys are seeing this. Asher continued at the seashore. Asher, why did you stay there? Zebulon is a people who jeopardized their lives to a point of death. Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. She's literally saying here in the song, where were you guys? Where are you? This is a woman of valor, a woman worth respect. This is a woman who stepped up, but I want to make sure you understand her stepping up came out of the passivity of the men who were called to protect the people and to fight for the people and to stand up for the people. The men who were the ones with the physical might 
and the physical ability. These men were called to lead and to fight. And it took a woman to look and say to them, what are you guys doing? She's singing a song. Where are you guys? Read through it again. Go back and read it again and see it. She's literally pointing them down and saying, y'all were just sitting around. So yeah, I'm going to step up. And yes, I'm going to fight. And yes, the children of God are going to have victory because God can use a woman just like he can use a man. But understand, God using the woman was out of her reluctance. She was reluctant to lead. This really speaks into the heart of what's happening in our church today. There's this whole argument about women leading in the church and women pastors and and women serving and all that good stuff. And 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 so and so you know that's led to so many arguments and disagreements in the body about women in the church. And I believe that God can use a woman woman in the same way that He can use a man. He may use it in a distinct way. God can use women and the scriptures show us all throughout the Bible how God is using women. And in this text, we see how God is using women. Deborah and Jael is using women. But notice though, and this is the part that may make some women uncomfortable, but I have to really speak into this as well. And this is going to make some men uncomfortable. I'm going to make everybody uncomfortable right now. But we see here in the text that God using Deborah and Jaya was out of their reluctance. They were reluctant to lead. They were reluctant to lead because they knew the role that the men had in assuring the rule and the law of God on earth. God's got a special place for men. And my concern today in the body of Christ is that, and I'm going to post a TikTok about this, and I'm going to record it, but my concern is that in the church, we're not really grieving the absence of men in the way that Deborah is grieving the absence of the men. I see here Deborah's grieving, but were you guys? It would almost seem as if now we have a culture among the people of God where the women, because of the absence of men, say, you know what, we're just going to move on and go on without them. We're just going to go and do our thing. You know what, if they're just going to sit around passively and do nothing, then you know what, whatever. We're just going to start our own church and do our own thing and start our own ministry. I see so many women-dominated churches today where it's, it's women-dominated, it's women-led. You see, you go into the church and to the community, and all you see are women, just women. And yet no one in that church is going, is actually grieving the absence of the men. It's almost as if we have this, um, there's this independent spirit. It's this independent spirit that has consumed the church today. Where women think that they're going to be okay without the men. 
We're just going to move on and we're going to do our thing. And that spirit is so destructive because we miss out on the divine principle of God. The divine principle, and this is going to make some people uncomfortable, but the scriptures do say that the head of the man is the woman. It didn't say the head over the woman, that the man is the head over them. They're equal in, in value and in dignity, but the man plays a critical role in the life of the woman. How dare we think that we can just go about and do ministry without the men? Oh, we'll be all right. We can do bad all by ourselves. That's the problem I got with with, with women's ministry today. I don't have a, I don't have an issue with women preaching. I believe God can use a woman to preach. I don't have an issue with women leading. Women have been gifted in a powerful way. Deborah led. We see all through Scripture women leading. I don't have an issue with that. I have an issue with women being okay with it and not grieving it. I have an issue with women moving on and believing that they can do this thing without the men. Why aren't we like Deborah where we led and we had victory and yes, they, had, they attributed my name to it, but don't I grieve and get on my knees and pray that the men would step up and come back don't we challenge our men you know what i found um and this is just speaking uh um just just on a ministry level um because people don't understand there's a there's there is a dimension of masculinity that that i believe we're missing in the church i'm not talking about uh misogyny i'm not talking about toxic masculinity i'm not talking about that kind of masculinity i'm talking about the type in which there's an embracing of the identity of being a man in the church and the role and the dignity that you have in being a man in the church. There's a value to that that you bring as a man in the church. And often we don't realize that in manhood, there's a dimension of discipleship that needs a type of language, that needs a type of uh, um, vernacular that needs a way to go about approaching and challenging men. I will say this to you right now. When we move on and say nothing about a man being absent, we are implicitly saying to the men in the church that their presence doesn't matter. Men continually need to be challenged. But I find that our churches don't challenge our men. Oh no, we don't challenge our men to pray. We don't challenge our men to be present. We don't challenge our men to lead. We simply just accept it. Well, it is what it is. He's a deadbeat dad. It is what it is. Let's go have some drinks. Even other men, we don't challenge them. We just say, hey, it is what it is. You got brothers in Christ that never challenge the men to be men. It is what it is. My question is, is in a church or in ministry where we see mostly women in the church and we see very few men, we have to ask ourselves the question, is it really just the men or is it possible it's also the church? 
These are things that I'm reflecting on. These are things that I'm grieving, family. And I tweeted on this uh, two days ago, I think. Maybe I tweeted it right after the message on Sunday. But I tweeted this. I said, we won't see the presence of men in the church until we grieve their absence. We won't, we won't see the presence of men until we grieve that they're not there. Like, like we, and, and, the, and the reason why it's so important for us to grieve their absence is because it's possible that we have turned the church into hostile territory for men. You know, the I can do bad all by myself mentality. It is what it is mentality. I'm just, we're just going to do church in our own way mentality. It's possible that we've actually created. And please, ladies, don't, don't, don't fight me right now. Don't fight me. But could it be possible that we have a feminized church where we preach messages that only cater to the women? where we do ministry in a way that simply addresses the spiritual needs of the woman with the language of the woman. Oh man, oh man, oh man. Is it possible that we've turned the church into hostile territory for men? Is it possible we just don't address them and we don't really address their needs? Our messages. I always see this. Like, like it took me. It took me. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm way over time today. Just let me just just and then I'm, I'll be done. Um, it took me. It took some time of reflection for me to really be aware of this and to start grieving it. And the moment that I started grieving it. I began to see things I didn't see before. Even, even, even I will take ownership on this. That maybe I pastored a church that seems hostile to men. That is hostile to men. Um, I started going to churches and I started realizing if I was a man, of course, I grew up, I'm in church and I'm a pastor and, and I lead here. But I started putting myself in the posture of a man who hasn't been in church for a minute. In the posture of a man who is, you know, still wrestling with things, dealing with things, going through some things and still trying to figure out who he is as a man and, and trying to work through things, has his own spiritual needs and, and, and his own particular needs that need to be addressed. And if I'm that man and I walk in to this church, how would I feel? And I realized I don't I wouldn't want to be here. Like everything here is said in a way that caters to women. Matter of fact, even the language of the pastors who preach sometimes can be condescending to men. And so we've created a church that's hostile to men. And yet we see a contrast, a man who doesn't feel like he's capable and able. Watch this now and I'm done. A man who doesn't feel like he's capable 
Mayo doesn't feel like he's able. A man who's wrestling with who he is, who sees himself very low, sees himself very small, and yet God continues to throw remnants and, and throw signs and point to the fact that, hey, I'm calling you. I'm calling you. Forget all the weaknesses you have as a man and, and the things that you can't do and the things you don't know and the things that you're not capable of. Don't worry, I'm calling you. I'm calling you. Don't worry, go. Go and just do it. Go and do it. I'm, I'm with you. God is reminding him, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. We see a man who's incapable who steps up because he's being encouraged to know that even though he's weak, uh, his strength is made perfect in his weakness. Even though he he doesn't know everything, but but the Lord is still doing a work in him because he matters. Gideon, you may seem small, but your presence matters. Your presence matters. He matters. And I see that in contrast to, to this woman who leads with valor, but is grieving the fact that the men didn't step up. Because even Deborah, through her exploit and through her victory, still wept. She grieved the fact that the men weren't there. You want to know why? Because for Deborah, the men mattered. They mattered. They mattered here. We needed you. I needed you. We have to admit that we have been very passive. So let's grieve the absence of the men in our church. We got we have to grieve it. We have to grieve it. We have to weep it and then we have to get on our knees and pray for it. Because I can tell you there's no healthy expression of the body in which the only men who are in the church are the ones who are the pastors and a few husbands here and there. But one in which we have a, a strong, healthy expression of men. This is my conviction. And it's crazy that I'm here in this text because the Lord is slapping me in the face with this. Deborah won, but she's still grieving that there are no men. So as a church, even though people are coming to Christ and we're winning, are we grieving the absence of our men? Mm. But I believe God is restoring the man because we see that the, that once Deborah grieves the absence of men, we see now a story of a man who is incapable, that God pours his spirit upon, that Jesus comes to visit, and Jesus says to him, go, step up. You may not have it all, but I'm going to use you to deliver the children of Israel out of the Midianites. I believe that Jesus is restoring the identity of the man in the church. When we pray, he's going to restore it. I believe that this is the season where God is restoring the identity of men in the church. I believe that we're going to see again male leadership. And I'm not talking about leadership as in the elders and the pastors. I'm talking about leadership in the home. You're going to see it when men come together and worship and in the body of Christ. You're going to see them come with their families. You're going to see their wives restored in them again. You're going to see marriages flourish again. You're going to see children who are being led by the spiritual direction of the men. God is going to restore the man, and he's going to redeem biblical manhood. I believe it, and I'm praying for it. 
Lord, I just ask that you would uh, be with us today. Lord, this is a word of conviction for me. It's a word of conviction for me as a pastor about even how I lead in ministry and how I minister. Um, it's a word of conviction for me, but should be an order of conviction for us all in the body. For me, not only as a pastor, but for me as a man to step up. Even as I celebrate the work, the incredible work that the women are doing in the body of Christ. Father, I, I come before you grieving the absence of the men in the body of Christ. And so I just ask that you would guide and that you would lead and that you would give us wisdom. Show us, Lord how we ought to take a step forward, Lord, to see, Lord, our leadership among men be restored again. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.